Bible, if you will, and turn in the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. If you're using one of these Bibles in the pews, that's page 830, Matthew 25. Today is Commitment Sunday for our visit uh, for our members. At the end of the service, I'll ask those that are members uh, that are prepared to turn in a uh, commitment card. Uh, you'll be given the opportunity to do that during the closing hymn of the service. We have these uh, collection boxes here in the front, but I'll remind you of that when we come to the end of the service. <clears throat> I've been preaching from some parables over the past few weeks, especially in the area of handling uh, material things that God gives to us. And this parable is the parable of the talents. It begins in Matthew 25, verse 14. Hear God's word as I read it. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But the master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, on that place, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So ends the reading of God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. This parable and the one before it, called the parable of the ten virgins, are told by Jesus for us to prepare for his coming. History is moving toward a time when Christ will return again. That will be the climax of all of history, the second coming of Christ. And he's telling us here how to prepare for that event. Because, as he mentioned in the previous parable, no one knows when it will be except the Father. Now he's saying how we are to be ready, and that is to be active in 
his service. We are to view the time that we have right now as an opportunity to put to good use the talents and gifts and abilities he has entrusted to us. Here's the parable. It's all around a man going on a journey. He calls his servants and he entrusts to them his property. And Jesus tells this. He starts by saying, or in the earlier one, Be on the alert, for the kingdom of God is like a man on a journey. Jesus is like the rich man, the wealthy man, a man of great wealth who has a number of servants. And he too is on a journey. He is waiting now until his return. Verse 15 tells us how he distributed these possessions. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one. Then he went away. So the picture for this is right now. This is today, the present era. Jesus has gone to the far country. His servants, all of us here on earth, are behind, and we are in charge of his affairs, his possessions. And each one of us has been given a measure, a measure of ability, of responsibility. So what I do want to do is make a few observations and then a few applications at the end. Here are some observations that we've learned from this parable. One, God distributes his gifts universally, but not equally. He distributes them universally, but not equally. A talent in the parable was an amount of money. It was a large amount of money. It's equal to about 20 years of work by a day laborer. I took the minimum wage today in America, and I multiplied it by the hours it would be for 20 years, and it's over $300,000. So if we just drew that parallel, one talent would be between three hundred dollars and $400,000 in today's value. But it represented more than money. It stands for the sum of all of your God-given abilities, capacities, resources, and opportunities. So it's not just talking about money. It's really what that money represents. He gives five talents to one servant, he gives two talents to another, and he gives one to the last. And the distribution, it says, is a, was according to his ability. All that you have, all that we have, comes from God. Some people have greater abilities, some have greater opportunities, some have more resources than others. And it is the prerogative of God to distribute his gifts as he pleases. But everyone gets something. Some have more and some have less. And then it says he went away. The master leaves and he leaves with no detailed instructions as to what they are to do. But he's going to watch. They know that they are responsible for this while he's gone. That's the first observation. Second observation. God requires that his gifts be used for his ends, for his purposes. Verse 16 said, He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five more. So this is the diligent servant. And he goes immediately. It says at once he traded with them. He put them to work. He set up some sort of business and he made a profit. In fact, he doubled what he had started with. The same diligence was demonstrated by the second servant with his two talents. It said in verse 17, he had the two made two talents more. But Jesus says of the third, 
he received one and he put it in a hole. He hid his master's money. The third servant played it safe. He avoided the risky work of buying and selling and trading. He merely, merely buried it for safekeeping. Now, when the master comes back, it says after a long time, he requires a reckoning, a balancing of the books. He's there to settle accounts. And he settles accounts because the original and the increase, the original and the multiplied talents all belong to him. That's very important. The servants were not to use what he had entrusted to them for their own purposes. They were not to spend those resources on themselves. And so the implication from this is that for you and me, we are not to use our own opportunities, abilities, capacities strictly for our own glory. They are God's assets, and they are to be used to honor and to praise him. And so the criteria for evaluation of what we have shall be what have we done for the sake of God's kingdom with what we have been given by him. Third observation, God commends and rewards the labors of the diligent. He commends and rewards them. The first servant, the one who increased from five to five more, he obeyed, he served the gospel that he had heard. He used all his gifts and he multiplied those opportunities to the glory of God. So he is a good and excellent and trustworthy servant. And he's commended. And Jesus says, you were faithful with a few things. He says in the parable, you were faithful with a few. He had, he had been responsible with what God had entrusted to him. And then he says, enter into the joy of your master. Note how life with God is described. The joy of your master, Psalm 16. One of my favorite verses in the Bible says, in the presence of God is fullness of joy. That's a life of God. Our world says it's just the opposite. But God says that is where true joy is. It's only in his presence that we find fulfillment and satisfaction. And so he also, who had the two talents, it tells us in verse 23, Master, you delivered me two, I've made two more. And the master says almost the same words to him as he said to the, ma uh, to the servant who had the five. He said, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Notice the second servant who increased from two to four he receives the same commendation as the previous one, the one who went from 5 to 10. He heard the same gospel message. He had believed it. He had obeyed it. He had served. And even though the sum of his abilities and his capacities and his opportunities was less than that of the first servant, that's of no consequence to the master. What was important is that they both took what they had, with what they had been entrusted, and they increased it. The one entrusted with two talents was not expected to produce the same thing as the one entrusted with five talents. That tells us that God's judgments and his rewards are proportionate with the distribution of his gifts. Jesus said in Luke 12, to whom much is given, much is required. We have been given much. The criteria for judgment will be more will be more intense than for someone who is given little. To whom little is given, little is required. So both stewards did, the first and the second servants, they, they both did what we could say, they did the best they could with what they had. 
One had more, one had less, but their efforts were equal, and their commendation was the same. Fourth observation. God condemns and punishes those who waste their talents. Now, we begin get a little uncomfortable when we come to the third, the response of the master to the third servant. In verse 24, here's his explanation. The one who had received the one talent, he comes forward and he says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you do not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. You have high demands, he's saying. And so it tells us this third servant did nothing with what he had. He heard the gospel and he did not respond. He failed to respond to the call of God. He refused to believe. He rejected it. And then who does he blame for his failure? The master. I squandered my opportunity, he says, because I knew you to be a hard man. You are a hard, demanding man with high expectations. And it frightened me. In other words, it's your fault. If you weren't so demanding, I would have done better. And so I was afraid, it says in verse 25, and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. He's saying, I haven't done anything bad. I'm giving you back what you had. At least I didn't spend it on myself. The problem with the third servant is that service for him meant merely avoiding doing anything wrong. That was his view of service. Don't do anything wrong. But the response from the master is harsh. Verse 26, you wicked, slothful servant, you knew, you knew that I reap where I do not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. So the master does not accept the third servant's explanation. Sure, you didn't do anything wrong, but it's wicked to squander talents. It's evil to waste one's ability and opportunities. And so the master says, you're slothful, you're lazy. You preferred your own comfort and self-indulgence to service. And you blame me. You blame me for what you didn't do. Then he says in verse 27, you ought to have invested the money in the bank, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. The way he phrases the word ought means that's the least you were obligated to do. That should have been expected. So verse 28 says that he deprives him from that point on for any future opportunities for service. Take the talent from him. Give it to him who has ten talents. It's as though the master said you might have served. Your life might have counted for something. Instead, you're going to lose all your opportunities for contributing. And then Jesus gives a lesson. After the parable, he gives this lesson. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Fail to use your talents, you forfeit them. Believe and your faith grows. Serve and your opportunities for service increase. Fail to use these resources for Christ's kingdom, and you forfeit them. There will come a time you have no opportunity. There is no indication here that God expects great and grandiose things from any of us. 
What he does require is that we use what he has entrusted to us to serve him, and if we do, he promises there will be an increase. But I can't skip over the the really dark words of verse 30. Cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The servant failed to serve. He failed to obey. He failed to believe. He squandered the opportunities God had given him to believe. And he is assigned a place in outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the phraseology in the Bible that describes hell. A complete and final rejection where there will be unceasing sorrow and grief. And the man is not sent there for some heinous act he did. He neglected to use the talents God had entrusted to him. So how do we examine ourselves if this is told, which it is, for the purpose of preparing for the return of Christ? Then using this parable, what questions should I ask myself? What should you ask yourself by way of personal examination to want to determine, are you prepared? Are you prepared for his return? First, have you believed the gospel? Have you believed the message about Christ? Many, many of us, we have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ over and over and over and over again. You've heard it preached here. You've heard it taught in Sunday school classes and home Bible studies on the radio. But have you acted on it? Have you believed? Have you responded immediately? It says about the first servant, at once. Or are you waiting like the wicked servant? Oh, yeah, what are you waiting on? I'm just waiting. I don't think the time's right. I'm going to wait till later in life. Then you're later in life. What are you waiting on now? I'm going to wait a little later in life. That's the first and primary question of this parable. Do I know where I stand with God? Do I realize I'm a sinner? Have I heard his call to repentance? Do I truly believe that Christ became my substitute and his death was for me as my substitute on the cross, that he received the punishment that my sin deserved, that God poured out on him? Seize your gospel opportunities. Believe. Trust, repent, surrender to Christ as Savior and Lord. That is the first step of being prepared for his return. Second question to ask ourselves, am I obeying and serving the gospel message? It's far more than merely a call to salvation. It's a call to commitment, to discipleship, to holiness, to love, to serving others, serving God. Most of us have heard this over and over again. But have you heeded this call? Are you heeding this call? A third question to ask is, am I using my various talents and abilities to serve God and prepare for eternity? Each of us has certain natural abilities. Then there are spiritual gifts that are given to us in Christ. The Apostle Paul said of those, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let each exercise them accordingly. Each of us, each Christian has received at least one spiritual gift. In addition to natural abilities and talents that have been developed that we have, some of you can teach, some can lead, some can serve, some can, you have outgoing and very welcoming personalities, some are very wise and you give godly counsel and some have great organizational skills and administrative skills. You're great planners, you're great strategic thinkers, some are artists and musicians and decorators and skills in business and in finance and 
and, and you're very discerning in giving. Some have gifts of giving, some have practical skills, and many, many more. I'm just scratching the surface. But the question is, using this parable, and I ask it with that in vain, is the Lord getting a return on the investment he has in you? Are you using those gifts and abilities he has given you to serve him or to serve yourself? Are they being used to raise a family for Christ? Are they being used to build a business for Christ? Are they being used to raise revenues for the work of the church of Christ here and abroad? Are they being used to lead others to Christ? Are they being used to serve the least and lost of people who suffer, Christ's people. The fourth question, not only have you believed the gospel, have you obeyed and served the gospel, are you using your various talents and abilities to serve God and prepare for eternity? Are you using your time to serve God and to prepare for eternity? Time, in other words, time itself is a gift of God. And we are responsible for how we use it. The psalmist prayed, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may present to thee a heart of wisdom. It doesn't mean to be a time freak where you're staring at your, clock, your watch. All, you don't carry watches, right? You're staring at your phone all day long, and you're just keeping up with, I've got to get 12 things done within the next 10 minutes. That's not it. But valuing time because it's finite, and we have a finite amount of it. How are you using it? Are you spending it to seize opportunities for God's service or wasting it on things that are frivolous and meaningless? Ephesians 5 says, look carefully how you walk, how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Another translation of Ephesians 5 says, making the most of the opportunities. The picture is that as we go through time, as we go through life, as followers of Christ, doors of opportunity open and shut around us. It's almost daily. Some of those are only open for a moment. Let me give you an example anyone can understand. You have a friend. They have a parent or someone close to them who dies. A door of opportunity opens up right then for you to have some kind of ministry with them through helps or service or encouragement. But a few days later, or especially a few weeks later, that door shuts. And so in many uh, deeds of opportunity, it's, it's, ti- it's time Critical. It needs to happen then, not a month later, not when you procrastinate some other time, but I must do it now. A job is offered. An opportunity to serve appears. A position opens up. I used to tell college students, you're in a class with a student next to you, and, and you begin to have rapport about substantial discussions and things of God. That is an opportunity that must be capitalized because when that class is over, if you're on a large campus, you may never see that person again. So as we get older, we should be more mature in seeing opportunities for service. Conversation that happens, a um, myriad of opportunities that happen. And we are not to sit back passively and wait. The wicked steward, the third steward, was afraid of the risk. And he says, I was afraid. Proverbs has many descriptions of laziness. And some are very humorous. One of the verses, and it's repeated, it's it's given twice in Proverbs, is that a lazy man, a slothful man, is one who won't get out of bed because there's something in the square. What is it, folks? Tell me. What's outside? What's in the street? A lion. His reason, get up, Johnny. 
It's 12 noon. Oh, there's a wild animal outside. I can't get up. I've got to stay in bed. You see the humor? And any of y'all see the humor in that? That's how it's describing it. What's he afraid of? He's afraid of a risk. And our culture tries, is trying to create a risk-free world, and it will not work. That is impossible. In any of us that grew up in families where our parents tried to make our lives risk-free, it becomes oppressive. It becomes oppressive because there are legitimate risks that must be taken. They must be taken as believers. There are open doors through which we must walk. There are closed doors we must open. There are bolted doors we must knock down. And I am not talking about I am not talking about recklessness. Let's all go hang gliding this afternoon in the name of Christ. That's not what I mean. With a disabled son, I'm flabbergasted at the way people will frivolously do things that could break their spines or where they'll never walk again. I'm not talking about that at all. I have no interest in that. What I am talking about is risk in opportunities that we say, this is beyond me. Yes, but you're the person at this time and the door's open for you. I don't know how God's going to enable me to do this. Right, Moses, but I'm going to use Aaron's mouth and he's going to speak, but you're still going to lead. I once heard Josh McDowell, he was a campus evangelist uh, with Campus Crusade for Christ years ago. He told about talking to a young, ma- young man who was thinking about serving in missions. And he said, I understand you want to do this. He said, I, I do, and I'm just waiting for God to open the door. And Josh McDowell, who never lacked in enthusiasm and passion, said he almost jumped across the table in the restaurant and said, open the doors? The doors have never been more open. You just need to walk through them. Fifth, Are you using material resources to serve God and prepare for eternity? Are you using the the material things, the the non-monetary things, your possessions, your house or apartment or your cars? How are they being used for the glory of God? Your, Your house or where you live, are you having others into your home? Believers and unbelievers into your home, are you practicing hospitality? I'm not talking about impressive parties or perfect dining. That's not what I'm talking about at all. There's a reason Jesus ate with the the religious outcast because that is a prime time for ministry. Everybody has to eat. And he was criticized for it because eating expressed and communicated acceptance. And it still does. I know I've said it so often that I think you get tired of hearing it, but I really think that in our culture, the most effective spiritual weapon in our arsenal as a church is the dining room table. More goes on in a mealtime, unsaid even, to build bridges and to influence people than, than most any other setting. And I realize there are different seasons of life and different responsibilities, and some things are not feasible for where people are at certain times in life, But are you stewards of your assets? Are you using them for the sake of Christ's kingdom? Are you tithing? A tithe, by definition, is a tenth. I'm hesitant. I'm teaching a class at FPD for nine international students, eight are from China, one's from Vietnam. None come from Christian backgrounds. All are atheistic or agnostic. Some, eight of them, are being taken to church, like today, with their host families. 
Regretfully, none are in our church because no host families are in our church, but there are, there are churches spread around. So after they'd been in town about 21 days, I said, okay, you've, been go- you've gone to church twice now. Have you seen anything you have questions about? Well, they immediately started asking questions. Why do you sing? And I tried to answer that, and they said, why do you, why do they and I, <laughs> give money? Is it, that, that's what they were trying to say. Why do we do that? So I said, let me explain it to you real quick. This is in the Bible. Let's say you came here and you lived with a host family, and the host family provided you a place to live, they gave you a car to drive, they put gasoline in the car, and they gave groceries and food. You needed nothing, and they gave you $500 a month to spend, and they gave that to you and provided for you. Do you understand? Yes, we all understand. At the end of that time, each month, that owner then said, I would like for you to take a portion of that, take 10% of the money I'm giving you that represents all this other stuff, and would you give that back as a sign of appreciation and acknowledgement that the owner is giving you all that? I said, do you get it? They said, oh, yeah, we get it. I said, that's why we give. Now, I I had not. (laughs) They get it. (laughs) I don't we get it. That's what tithing is. Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek as a type of Christ. Jacob followed the example. Malachi says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Are we tithing? Are you giving? These are questions for ourselves. Am I giving sacrificially, as Charles mentioned in his, in his testimony? That's above and beyond other type things. Sacrificial giving hurts because it leads to self-deprivation. I am depriving myself of something when I give sacrificially. So, in conclusion, what does it mean to be on the alert? If that's the point of this, it started off in verse, or it says in verse later in 42, but it started at verse 13. Be on the alert. It means to be prepared for his return. All of history is moving toward that. We like to be prepared. We have homeowner's insurance just in case there's a fire or a burglary. We have life insurance just in case. It's an untimely death. We have travel insurance just in case the trip falls apart. So we want to be prepared for what might happen. The Bible says this will happen. It's not probable. It's not possible. It is a certainty. So are you prepared? Are you preparing now for that certainty? Jesus told his parable so that you and I can be prepared. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful that history has a design behind it and it is moving toward a climax when you will return. We don't know all the details. We don't know when, uh, but we know it will be ultimate. And we know from this that it's certain. So we pray that on a day-to-day basis, you might enable us as your followers to cry out to you for wisdom, to be faithful servants of the things you've entrusted to us, to see opportunities for service and to take the risk and be bold in your name. We pray that even this coming week you give us greater sensitivity to the use of things and money and time and opportunities that you've entrusted to us that we would recognize we have limited time that you will return from the journey and there'll be an account. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.